Here we go. Hi, everyone. This is Rosemary Coates in Silicon Valley. I'm your host for this edition of the Frictionless Supply Chain Podcast. I'm the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, where we help companies expand or bring back their manufacturing to the U.S., and I'm a contributing writer to Supply Chain Management Review. Today, I'm delighted to introduce my guest, Adrienne Braumiller, and a number of you may recognize her name. I know she puts on a lot of webinars and her law firm does a lot of teaching and global trade. Um, the Braumiller Bra Law Group is a law firm specializing in international trade law. Mm -hmm. And if you're involved in trade, you probably recognize her name. Uh, today, we're going to do an update on what's uh, happening with the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act. And we've talked about this before on the podcast, and I've written about it as well, uh, because it's causing an awful lot of distress in global supply chains. It's a very difficult topic. So let's get started. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you so much for the invitation, Rosemary. I appreciate it. Yeah, so this is great. Um, tell us about your background, how you started law practice in global trade. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Well, um, actually, I was so interested in international law from the age of 16. It's crazy. Um, and so I ended up going to uh, SMU Law, excuse me, SMU College, and uh, my advisor was an attorney from the Netherlands and she really was a, kind of a visionary. I was talking to her about what does international law mean? It's such a big topic. International law, is it, is it family law? Is it criminal law? What is it? So she was the one who said, you really should look at customs and, and trade. And that was 1980, which shocks me. <laughs> and so, you know, the fact that she thought that was an up and coming area was really amazing. Um, and this is before the Internet. So I'm like, whoa, <laughs> because she was so she was a big believer in globalization, that it was going to happen, whether we liked it or not. And so I I focused my uh, law school years on international law. I ended up at a boutique law firm in San Francisco and decided that really Texas didn't have enough international trade law firms. And with NAFTA on the horizon, um, I thought it would end up becoming, of course, uh, effective. It wasn't at the time. So I basically came here in 1992, started a customs and trade law when there weren't any in Dallas. Um, and here I am 31 years later. Wow. Yeah, I had a similar story. I, I worked for a broker while I was in college yeah. and, and that's where I learned the brokerage business and then got my brokerage license in 1982 when nobody ever heard of customs. Like, what or... is that? What do you mean? Are you a real estate? <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. There you go. So what kind of services do you offer today? We are focused 100% on customs and international trade related issues. So it's it's everything from uh, forced labor, obviously forced labor and supply chain tracing um, to export control, ITAR, uh, foreign trade zones, foreign trade agreements, uh, free trade agreements, um, penalties, uh, investigations, voluntary self-disclosures, you name it, we do it. 
Ah, gotcha. And jumping countervailing booty, lots of that. <laughs> yeah. Because you're in Texas, you must do quite a bit of cross-border commerce as well. We do. Yeah, we do. Um, NAFTA was, you know, huge for Texas. It's like when I look at some of the border cities and I compare them from uh, when I started the practice in 92 to today, it's crazy. It's like they are booming cities. Yeah, I I was down in Laredo a couple of weeks ago, and we stood at the International Bridge and watched the trucks cross, and it was astonishing. It is. I have to tell you, I, I have seen a lot in my career and was just blown over by how fast they move through the border, as yes. well as how many trucks. They said there are 14,000 trucks a day moving across the border in Laredo. That's amazing. Well, Laredo's a fairly small town. I mean, it's it just is. amazing. Yeah. But it's much bigger than it was in 92. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Let me assure you. <laughs> so uh, today, though, we want to talk about the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection yeah, Act. Absolutely. Specifically. And it went into effect, what, about a year ago, I think? Yes. And can you describe what it's all about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So what it did is it establishes a uh, rebuttable presumption that goods um, that are made or any inputs that go into a good that are made with forced labor from the Uyghur Autonomous Region or from specified entities are made with forced labor. So it's basically this rebuttable presumption that if these goods come from that specific region of China or from specified entities that those goods were made with forced labor. Um, and so it applies unless Customs and Border Protection determines through clear and convincing evidence that those goods, wares, articles, or merchandise are, were not produced with forced labor or that UFLPA doesn't apply to the goods. So, so I, it's, I it's, really, it's really difficult to overcome. Yeah, I think this is really interesting because uh, we're used to uh, innocent until pr proven guilty. Yes. I and mean, that's, that's kind of the, the idea. Case, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the idea of laws in America. In this case, it's just the opposite. So it's you're yes. guilty until you prove that you're innocent. Right? I mean, technically, a rebuttable presumption is a presumption that, you know, if these goods come from that region, yes, you're guilty. If they come from that region or they come from that entity, yes, you're guilty. Um, and, and you know, if you look at the Uyghur Autonomous Region, there are a lot of forced labor businesses there, okay? Um, but, you know, th th I think the question remains, are there any businesses in that region that don't use forced labor? Right. So, right. yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think a lot of, there, there's a lot of frustration among uh, corporations, they don't know what to do. And if they do get uh, some kind of exclusion or detention notice and they try to deal with it, what they're finding out is that they, if they try to rebut it and it's denied, they will not, right now they don't give any reason as to why it, it's denied or excluded. So that's really frustrating. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about who the Uyghurs are. So I know it's yeah. a it's an ethnic group in the far yes. western provinces of China, kind kind of akin to Tur Turks, I think. Yes, more yes. Than so it's Chinese. it's all the um, 
Yeah, so it's Uyghurs and, and it's basically Muslim minority population, if you want to think about it like that. So okay. it's near Kazakhstan and all the Stans, right? Okay. Uh, in China. So I actually, my law clerk, believe it or not, um, in, before he went to law school, he lived in that region for three months and was uh, studying the, the Xinjiang Production Corp and its forced labor policies. Uh, and then he ended up uh, moving to Turkey to live with the refugees ah. of, of the Uyghur population. So I found it so interesting that, I mean, and he, he witnessed a lot of abuse. Well, what, what, what's the point? I mean, why is China rounding up all these people? And, and they're actually putting them in these sort of concentration camps, right? Yeah, they are. I mean, I, I guess it's just a different, I mean, it's like looking at a population, uh, you know, a minority group and saying they're less than we are. And they're lucky to, that we're putting them in this housing and they're lucky to work for us. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't culturally, I'm not really sure I understand why they do it, but obviously as Americans, I think none of us would feel comfortable buying goods that are made with forced labor or child labor. We just, that's not part of our. Yeah. It's, it's a really different kind of idea that yeah. you would put people into concentration camp. It's my understanding that the Chinese think they are re-educating. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the people. argument. They're re-educating. They're, they're basically giving them opportunities they otherwise wouldn't have, but they're taking them uh, from families and, you know, without any contact ever again. So it's, it's crazy. It's just, and it, and it's really, the other thing that's really difficult is that our government wants uh, U.S. companies to audit their companies in China. And they literally want right. U.S. companies to go into the factory and, and video the working conditions and interview the employee employees and uh, obtain the documents regarding wages, all these things that like, are you, do you think that we'll ever get any of that? Yeah. I was just going to say, is you, that even possible? No. I mean, if, and if I owned no. a factory, I don't care where it is. I'm not going to let some outside no. party come in and tape, you know, what I'm doing. No. First of all, it'd be an IP violation, but secondly, it's a kind of a privacy violation too. Well, basically there's a blocking statute in China that if if Chinese factories or parties comply with our law, it's against their law. And wow. that person can actually be penalized and, or even imprisoned. Well, so, and I think that's kind of true no matter where you travel in the world, you, you are yeah. expected to... Uh, adhere to the local laws, right. not not your or origin country laws. So, right. so yeah, I'm it's, an American it's, going to Ireland or right. you know France or whatever. I have to comply with the local laws. Right. So it's extraterritorial. It is an yeah. extraterritorial law. Absolutely. Okay. Well, no, but U.S. Customs has always um, rejected goods made by forced labor, right? Well, look, that's been a statute yeah. forever. It's been well, the statute. Yes, the statute has been there uh, for nearly a century. Right. Um, and but what happened is that there was a consumptive demand exception. 
So for years and years, you could bring in goods with ma made with forced labor if you could show that uh, there was no no ability to for the domestic market to serve that consumptive demand, right? So you could fly under the radar. You could you were able to get it in under that uh, loophole. But then that changed in 2016 with the Trade Enforcement Act, and, and, and we got rid of that loophole. So that's when we started to see some enforcement increase. So, so if Customs believes uh, a product coming into the U.S. has any forced labor into it, they, what, can stop it yeah. or reject it or what happens? Right. So there, there's basically different things that can happen. Um, the If they have a presumption, they'll issue a detention notice. You have 30 days to do something. Um, and you could ask for an extension, but it's kind of hard to get one. I mean, you might get 15 or 30 more days. But um, so, so basically, if you get a detention notice, do you really think that you are able to at that point trace the entire supply chain, is 30 days gonna do it, trace the entire supply chain, put together all the documents that are involved in the transaction. It's, you've gotta have all the upstream documents of all the suppliers, right? You've gotta have the wage documents from that supplier. There's a lot of information you have to get to show that the goods were not made with forced labor. So essentially, if you wait until you get a detention notice to do all that, you're you're not going to be successful, right? You need to tr you need to trace the supply chain now and see where you have risks in your value chain and determine like hey, this particular value chain is the most important to me and I need to Go ahead and trace it now so that if I ever have a detention, I can prove that it doesn't come from that region. Um, and really, let me just back up. So if you get a detention notice, you can do three things. You can either export the product and you're going to have to figure out where to export it to, right? Because a lot of other countries now are following in the footsteps of the U.S., right? And even before we had the UFLPA under the USMCA, under the US-Mexico-Canada Free Trade Agreement, we already had um, a provision that prevented forced labor. So because of that, you can't export the goods to Canada. You can't export the goods to Mexico because there is a provision that prevents forced labor. You probably can't, ex you can't export to the UK because they have an anti-slavery law. The EU has new legislation, I think, in the works that prevents it, Australia, Japan. Anyway, where are you going to send it? So you can export it, but you're going to have to figure out where can you send goods that have a presumption of forced labor. So you can do that before the goods are seized or excluded. Your other option is you can uh, request a scope uh, decision where you prove that the goods were not uh, actually from the Uyghur region or not from an entity. So that means, hey, it doesn't fall within the scope of this law. If 
the, the goods really are from the legal region, then you have to prove they weren't made with forced labor. And that, that's really difficult. But again, yes. it's going to be all that same supply chain tracing, all the documents that show there's no forced labor. So you have those three options. And most companies, if they haven't already tried to trace their supply chain, will end up um, exporting. The other thing to keep in mind, which is really awesome, is that companies that are CTPAT certified, right? The Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism, if they're a member of that, they actually get more time. They get a pre-detention notice. Well, I think, you know, so from a supply chain perspective, if you're uh, or I have a client that is producing goods um, in China and um, they may not be produced in the uh, Zhejiang province. How do I tell if there are parts or components that might have come from Zhejiang? Or I understand that now, I mean, if you're, for example, an apparel producer right. uh, and you're using cotton that may have been grown in the region, there's a way that you can, that they, that customs can test the fabric yes. or the origin of that cotton based on its, its DNA. Yes. Holy cow. I mean, how on earth do you manage a supply chain like that to, to know where your raw materials came from? Well, well I think... I think I think the thing is, is that there are so many um, tools out there now that there weren't when the law first came into effect. Right. So there are a lot of or maybe they were there, but we weren't as aware of them. So there's lots of different software tools that help you identify a value chain. It's very interesting. Um, and so I think a lot of companies can either hire a third party consultant, or they can purchase a software that will use publicly available information and help you trace uh, where there's risk in your value chain. So I really think that's what they need to be doing. And, and so what we've done with our clients is we said, look, we bought, we purchased some of the same tools that Customs is using so we can see what they see, uh -huh. right? And I think that helps. I think I think it used to be a lot more difficult. I will tell you there was um, a recent study that came out that essentially said that a lot of corporations have no idea what to do. Um, but I think the number one takeaway I would give people is supply chain tracing and yeah. identifying the risk is the key thing to do. Right. Yeah, and and I even heard that um, there are Uyghurs that are being bused to the big manufacturing areas in, yes. in Guangdong and uh, yes. Guangzhou, Shenzhen, yes. you know, yes. Pudong, all these places where there are big factory environments, and these Uyghurs are being bused there. So it's possible there's Uyghur content in a factory that you had no idea had any association with Zhejiang Province. Absolutely, so, um, yes, and I think I what's interesting if you look at the uh, customs statistics, they have a dashboard on their website that shows the enforcement efforts to date, which I think are real, it's really helpful. And, and the number one country for, uh, forced labor is not China. It's Malaysia. Wow. So I not, know that. yeah. So, so 
when we talk about forced labor generally, right, there's there's two regimes. There's forced labor in general, and then there's UFLPA. But there's also a lot of, like you said, transfers of, of workers. But right. And then there's also transshipment. So there's transshipment uh, to Malaysia. Malaysia is the number one country for forced labor shipments uh, or imports. And then Vietnam is number two. China is number three. Wow. So there's well, a lot I, happening. Yeah, and this is like terrifying. And if you're a global supply chain person right. responsible for trade compliance, how on earth can you make sure that you don't have Uyghur content or forced labor content from another country mm -hmm. in your supply chain? I mean, it, I, there's you know lots of arguments to be made to control your supply chain, tier one, tier two, tier three suppliers all the way down. You have right, to. and understanding that, but you still are at risk. So yeah, you're at risk, and I think I think the thing is is that you first you have to do the supply chain tracing. You've also got to use contractual provisions just to protect yourself. Um, you know, you can. I, I think what you would have to tell a supplier who used a tier two or tier three. Uh, supplier that had forced labor, hey, if you don't remediate or have them remediate the mm -hmm. forced labor, then we will have to find another source, right? Yeah, and and you know a provision also that if uh, it, goods arrive at U.S. Customs and it's found to to contain some kind of forced labor, that you have the right to ship everything back at their cost. Yeah, absolutely, right. absolutely. Yeah. So that's a that's a good another additional provision you want. I to love put that in. one. <laughs> yeah, you put into your contract to, yeah. uh, you know, make sure that there are no violations by by your supplier. But even with that, I think you're still going to find there's forced labor that is bust into these areas and is going to be part of the content of your goods. And how we control that is really a a, a huge issue for supply chain people right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very daunting, and there lots of companies are still trying to get their arms around how to do it and what to do, and and so even if you haven't done anything yet, you obviously take the time and start doing something. <laughs> start today. That's right. Start today. Well, yeah. Adrian, it's been fascinating talking to you. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything you would like to add? Closing thoughts. Yeah, well, I think one thing that's really interesting, um, I want to get I want to get her title right. So one thing that happened just recently is Dr. Laura Murphy. Um, she uh, is a professor of human rights and contemporary slavery for the Helena Kennedy Center for International Justice Forced Labor Lab at Sheffield Hallam University. So she's really an expert. That's in at, England? Sheffield? Yes. Yes, ma'am. It's in the UK. She's actually in Louisiana, um, but she just uh, was seconded as a policy advisor for the undersecretary in the Office of Policy in the Department of Homeland Security. So she is going there. She started November 6th and is going to assist them in development of um labor policy, forced labor policy, and enforcement. And so I feel like with her knowledge base and her understanding of all the different 
entities that are out there that probably are going to see an increase in enforcement because she really is an expert. But what's weird too is because it's a secondment, she's still part of the university. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? So it's on loan. So secondment is on loan, sort of, right? Yeah, she's on loan. She's on loan. And so um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what, what shakes out from her involvement. She's so knowledgeable. She's a genius. She's, uh, I I feel like customs will learn a a lot from her, which is a good thing. Um, Well, and we, we can all certainly learn a lot from you as well. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, this has been really fascinating. Really, really appreciate it. And you're obviously, uh, you know, have lots of experience in this area and a great resource for supply chain people. So if uh, anyone wants to get in contact with you, can you give us your contact information or your website? Absolutely. So our website is brownmillerlawgroup.com. And uh, my email is Adrian. A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E at Brown Miller Law is spelled B-R-A-U-M-I-L-L-E-R-L-A-W.com. Adrian at BrownMillerLaw.com. Ah, terrific. Yeah. Thank you so much. And you can, you. Listen to, you can listen to more Frictionless Supply Chain podcasts posted on Supply Chain Management Review's landing page, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates, R-C-O-A-T-E-S, at reshoringinstitute.org. And visit our website, www.reshoringinstitute.org where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.